Jay Ham and I are ready for episode number five, and what an episode it is going to be. Remember, available on iTunes and all podcast platforms. We want you to subscribe so that you're reminded every time we drop a new show. We want you to rate us, give us five stars. Jason Hamilton doesn't accept anything less than five stars. And what are we doing on this particular podcast? How about three guests? My longtime friend, baseball analyst for ESPN, now The Athletic, Jason Stark on what the Mariners and Jerry DePoto are truly doing. Peter King, NFL guru, NBC Sports on the Seattle Seahawks and the NFL playoff races. And Tim Healy, the Mets beat guy for New York Newsday, is going to give us the real truth behind the Cano Diaz deal and what the M's truly got back in return for those two stars. Also, topics include the NHL coming to Seattle, the Dogs in Gonzaga, the Seahawks on Monday night against the Vikings, the Mariners keep trading away popular players, Urban Meyer, a little game called What Seahawks Jersey Did Max Want for Hanukkah, and the tail of the tape. We will play the Monday night game on paper and give you a sense of what might happen on Monday night football between the Vikings and the Seahawks. It's all coming up on episode number five. Welcome back. We've missed your voice every day. Welcome back. There's been so much to say. No one feels our pain they don't wear our shoes especially when our mistakes end up on front page news oh mitch you know we miss you schnoz we know we miss you thank god i wasn't with you no i wasn't with you i'm gonna tease you a lot because peter king took my spot welcome back welcome back welcome back welcome back Mitch's our guy, he's our guy, he's our guy. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. Unbelievable. Unfiltered. This Seahawks turnaround is remarkable. Remember, they can't win a preseason game. And then two games into the regular year, we're looking forward to the NFL draft in 2019. And now three months later... We're asking wild card number one or wild card number two, and who would you rather play in the first round of the playoffs? Amazing. Unfiltered. I don't know. It just seems to me that if Jerry DePoto and the Mariners are going to make all these trades look beyond 2019, well, then they can't expect everyone to pay the same ticket prices as they did for an 89-win team in 2018. Mitch is unfiltered. Episode number five. Here we go, Jason Hamilton, who joins us from Spokane, Washington, or as Bino used to say, Spokane, Washington. Spokane. Spokane, where the Zags and the Dogs went down to the heart-breaking wire. Please, talk me off of the cliff. I didn't think at halftime they had any chance of making that a close game. They lead at 45-42 by three, and they get, what, three or four great looks to try to make it five or six. One corner jumper that I remember from Green at 45-42 would have given them a six-point lead, a wide-open corner three-pointer, Jason. They missed that. They fell behind. They came back. They got the free throws. 
to tie it and then heartbreak City at the end. Could they have played that any differently down the stretch? What was your take on uh, on the dogs near miss at number one Gonzaga? Yeah, first of all, like you said, I mean, the fact that they were down 10 and, and it looked like Gonzaga had a chance to run away in the first half because of the foul trouble that Washington was in. Um, the Huskies came back first couple of possessions of the second half and really put it on Gonzaga, uh, got that lead. And as you said, there was a couple of shots that if they would have gone down, might have changed the early complexion to that second half. But I was, I was uh, pleasantly surprised to see Washington through uh, some of the first half turnovers come back in that second half and, um, and really kind of clean things up, scrap Jalen Noel, you know, doing Jalen Noel things, 26 points. Uh, you know, Matisse Thibault finally coming around offensively, 18 points, um, four assists, and, and, and playing that stellar D. But, you know, that last possession – with uh, Rui Hachimura, who had a monster game, 26-7. Yeah. and seven. Yeah. Sam Timmons was right right there on him and, and didn't really elevate. Not that that's what Sam does, but, you know, uh, Hachimura goes over him and bang, knocks down that shot with .6. And as great as Washington plays, that, that one stings, Mitch, because that one really could have changed the entire complexity of the season for Washington. We've got lots to talk about, obviously, beyond the Huskies basketball team. So much on our hit list today. But before we get off of that game, I was watching with my boys, and we all kind of just sighed in despair when the shot went down. And I said to the guys, to my to my sons, I said, you know, so often the big guy kind of gets caught in the middle. Either you'd like a hand right in the face, right in the eyes, so he can't see the mm-hmm. basket, or we got to elevate straight up without fouling and and get as high as possible. And he seemed to be somewhere in the middle. It wasn't he wasn't committed to the height, and he certainly didn't go for the hand in the face to try to block the the sight of the shooter. Yeah, and I think part of his deal having four fouls. Even you, you think about in that situation, don't worry about that. You, you gotta you gotta put that behind you. But I think he played so many minutes with four flat fouls that he was he was almost tentative to go react the way that he probably should have reacted. And instead, you know, I'm not sure it would have mattered if if Sam. Uh, you know, I love Sam, but if Sam would have jumped as high as he could, Hachimura is such a better athlete, he probably still would have raised above him to at least uh, get a look. But, you know, it's it's disappointing. But, um, you know, they're the number one team in the country, and they've had some big wins. But I'm not so certain, and we might be talking about this later, I'm not so certain that this Zags team is as good as the Final Four run Zags team. Uh-huh. I know they beat Duke. I know they had a great Maui tournament. But there's some there's some uh, some holes in this team that you know probably need to be filled with some guys that are hurt right now. But against Washington, I'm not sure they look like the number one team in America. All right. So now what? Before we get off of this topic and start hitting some of this list that we have to catch up on since Monday's uh, Mitch Unfiltered podcast, the Huskies. We we talked about it. I think it was the last episode number four. They, uh, they've now essentially run out, except for maybe Virginia Tech, they've run out of opportunities to win kind of a signature out-of-conference game when the yeah. Pac-12 is getting beat up and out-of-conference and it's not going to help them very much and there aren't many quality wins in the Pac-12. You would have liked to have seen them get one. This would have been obviously a gigantic one to notch. So what happens now if they don't beat Virginia Tech? You said that was in Atlantic City. What does this Husky team, is this Husky team now truly behind the eight ball 
to get into the NCAA tournament so early in the season to be talking about this? Well, four games to go before conference play in Washington stands at six and three, right? And those games outside of Virginia Tech that you spoke of, Seattle University next Sunday, uh, Virginia Tech uh, the following Saturday, Sacramento State and Cal oh, State Fullerton. Oh, boy. They better win the Virginia Tech game. They better win the Virginia, Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech becomes massive. Yes, absolutely massive to have a neutral court, uh. you know, top twenty-five win, and or, or else they're, they're going to really have to do some, as you like to say, some business. Yeah. In the Pac-12. Yeah. When and and business in the Pac-12 is different every year, right? Depending upon the level of the Pac-12. This year, business might be, I don't know, fourteen wins, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen yeah. wins. I, that I mean, may be I business. Think, yeah. I think. I think 14 is probably the bottom. Wow. I think, you know, it just really depends on, you know, who's on tap left. I, I need to really examine the schedules for the remaining, uh, you know, non-conference game for each member of the Pac-12. But, I, you know, I need to see who's left that can get a big out-of-conference win that could boost the league. But it, right now there really isn't a, a great signature win from the conference. This would have been had Washington knocked off, obviously, the number one team on the road. Yeah. It puts the Pac-12 and, and all the member institutions on a different, on a different path because at least, um, you know, there's that marquee win. Now, uh, you know, everybody's scratching their head, and, and Washington really needs to beat Virginia Tech. All right, let's, uh, let's hit the hit list. Uh, what do you? What does it mean to you to have the NHL officially coming to the Seattle area in 2021 and 22? We've been hearing about it, reading about it, and getting excited about it for a long time. It became official this week. Uh, it's a long time until they actually lace them up. I guess you call them lacing up the skates. Uh, yep. what, what's your What's your history? Do you have any history with hockey? And before I give you mine, uh, I have I have been to two NHL games in my life. And uh, I went to the Flyers-Penguins game in Philadelphia. So there was a, a lot of bad blood in that one. It was my first ever NHL game. This is years ago, and it was uh, a lot of fun. And then I went up, uh, I went up to Vancouver and watched uh, the Canucks and the Blues play. So I, I've seen two NHL games, a couple, of, a couple of Thunderbird games, but two NHL games. And it's a great spectator sport if you're in the arena it's not the best i think and i think that's conventional wisdom about nhl yeah. on yeah. television but yeah. an in-person spectator sport it, it's it's fun and you're excited is the jason d hamilton which family which is more of a basketball family uh it does it yeah. register does the fact that was that a was that a good day for the hamilton family or is that just oh we're getting hockey here in seattle well, of course, you know, and I don't want to rain on anybody's parade because I know there's a ton of people that are super, super excited for the NHL. And I, you know, uh, I, I'm excited for the city of Seattle to, to be able to get a professional hockey team and, and kudos to the, to the group um, involved to get them here. You know, would I prefer the NBA back? Of course, of course. I would, but that's, yeah. that's me and my, and my background. But sure, like, you know, if, if tickets are available, which I know they're going to be a tough ticket, I would, I would absolutely bring my wife and kids to an NHL game and more than one if I could and, and during their inaugural season and, and beyond because I think it is a fun experience and, you know, I think the city's going to get behind it. Oh. What about you? I know you were as a Florida, as a Florida lad, yeah. but up in yeah. D.C. for many years, you, yeah. you had to be around the caps. Well, you know what? Very little caps. Very little Caps attention. My hockey story is, everybody knows that I grew up in Florida in the in the 60s and 70s. Not only was there no hockey in Florida, hockey wasn't even on the news. I mean, 
typically a sports report like the 11 o'clock news before ESPN came around where we'd all huddle around to see what the local sportscaster was going to talk about. Hockey, they didn't even give the scores. I don't know what they did here in Seattle. So I had I had zero, zero knowledge. I mean, less negative knowledge of, of hockey. And then I went up to Syracuse, New York to go to school, and I had a roommate who was from the Boston area. And he would watch, for some mm-hmm. reason, in Syracuse, on the cable system in Syracuse, they had... Uh, a TV station, I believe, called TV 38 from Boston. This guy was a huge Boston sports fan and a huge Boston Bruins fan. And he would say, Mitch, come on, sit down with me and watch the watch some hockey. Let's watch the, the Habs, Montreal and Boston. <laughs> and, and, I'd okay. sit, and I'd sit down and I just never got it. I couldn't get it. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand the game. I couldn't follow the puck. I couldn't understand what anybody who loved hockey was going through their minds. And so I would try to watch his Boston Bruins play from time to time, and it never really worked. And then Thanksgiving sophomore year at Syracuse, he took me home. Instead of going home to Florida, I went with him home to the Boston area. And he said, come on, we're going to the Boston Garden. We're going to take you to your first ever NHL game, your first ever hockey game. And I'm like, really? Were you excited? No, because I had watched all these games on TV, (laughs) and I couldn't follow the puck. And so yeah. I go with him to the Boston Garden, and I start watching this game. I think it was Montreal and Boston. I'm pretty sure. And the intensity and the crowd, and I'm following the puck, and I'm getting the rules, and I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm being sold right there, right there on the spot. I loved it. I had the time of my life at that game. And then I went yeah. back to Syracuse to finish out that year. And when he was watching, I was watching Ray Bork and Cam Neely and Kenny the Rat Linsman and Reggie Lemelin and, and Gord Kluzak and all these guys on the Boston Bruins. And I was, I was all of a sudden, from a, a negative hockey fan, I became a Boston Bruins fan. And then I, mm. I graduated from Syracuse and I went to Washington and I, again, turned it off. I watch the Bruins yeah. every once in a while, but again, the TV broadcast, like you say, I could just never get in to to TV hockey, and I still can't. Yeah. So I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled for Seattle. I don't think this has anything to do with the NBA. I don't really connect one with the other. Yeah, there's an arena issue, and yeah, can they share sure. one, and where is it going to be, and all that stuff, but I'm just thrilled that hockey's coming to Seattle because I'm thrilled – that the Levy family, I can take my boys, they've never been, I can take my boys to a hockey game, and they can, they're probably saying to me when I drive them to the to their first hockey game exactly what I was saying to uh, to my roommate when he was taking me to the Boston Garden. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I believe, like what happened to me, what will happen to them is they'll get there, they'll see the intensity, they'll see the puck, they'll follow the puck, and uh, they'll become hockey fans. So I think it's a, I think it's a great thing for for Seattle. Monday night football, Jason Hamilton, looming. Woo. Monday night football, the Seahawks and the Vikings. The Hawks now, if you listen to Mr. Postseason and you're a patron, the Hawks now an overwhelming favorite to make the playoffs. And so yes, sir. Monday night becomes even bigger for the Vikings than it is for the Seahawks. It looks like the Seahawks are just two wins away. And later on in this episode on the podcast, on the Mitch Unfiltered podcast, we're going to do the tail of the tape. We are going to play this game today. 
We're going to play this game on the podcast, on paper. Who do you think wins? I'm not going to answer your question, but who do you think wins on paper between the Vikings and the Seahawks? Are you really asking me that question? I'm asking you that question. Who wins on paper? Okay. On paper, I think the Seahawks win. Okay. How about on the field? I think the Seahawks win. Both. On the paper and on the field. Really? But I know you're going to give me the tail of the tape. I know last time, actually, the last game that you gave me the tail of the tape was San Francisco. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. I was surprised at how close or, I guess, the, how well San Francisco stacked up in the tail of the tape that actually made me nervous about the game. Yeah, but so the, the Seahawks, but, but the Seahawks ran away with a tail of the tape. Just there were some, there were some categories I think that were closer, as I recall. But the Seahawks That's won. True. The Seahawks won clearly in categories. The tail of the tape. We'll see how the we'll see how the Seahawks do against the Vikings. They could be. You realize that there's a chance. I don't want to put too much Mister Postseason on you, but there's a chance that if the Seahawks win on Monday night, and then they turn around and they win in San Francisco or Santa Clara. The following Sunday, they win the next two to get to nine mm-hmm. and five. You realize that there's a chance that the Seahawks could clinch a playoff spot with two weeks to go in the regular season. That would be nice. Wouldn't that be something? That would be nice, especially it's, for a team that started zero and two and and <laughs> you know kind of scuffled their way along and yep. people were asking a lot of questions. Yeah, yes. they sure were. It's unlikely that that's going to happen, even if they do win the next two, that they're going to clinch. But that's just how how solid the playoff positioning. I saw something about the Seahawks and one guy in, in, in particular I want to share with you today. Bobby Wagner's had a pretty good year. You realize he had a sack, a forced fumble, 12 tackles, an interception, and a pick six. You realize he had all of that in last game against the San Francisco 49ers? You knew that, right? Well, the interception was the pick six. Yeah, right? they're the same. Not a, I, yeah, not an interception yeah, and a yeah. pick six. An interception yeah. that went for a touchdown. And so, you know, pro football focus. I don't even know what to think about pro football focus. Sometimes I laugh at pro football. But they're the, they seem to be the entity that really rates and grades and gets into the tapes and the films and, and mm-hmm. really analyzes who's having great years and who's not having great years. And they rank linebackers in the following statistical categories. Against the run, tackling in terms of missed tackle percentage, pass rushing mm-hmm. linebackers, coverage linebackers, and then they take all of the linebackers in those statistics in those categories they put it together and they that helps them spit out which linebacker is having the best season is the highest rated linebacker in the NFL Mm -hmm. pro Mm -hmm. football focus said today that Bobby Wagner ranks number one in all of the categories (laughs) I mean that's 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 all pro all pro you need to lead one of the categories to be an all pro he is the number one linebacker against the run he is the number one tackling linebacker he's the number one pass rushing linebacker and he's the number one linebacker in coverage he is across the board the best linebacker meaning that he is having one of the greatest seasons that a linebacker has ever forget all pro I mean he's he's going to be unanimous all pro He's having one of the greatest li- – I mean, we're talking Mike Singletary. We're talking, I don't know, use who you want to use, Dick Butkus. I don't know, Lawrence Taylor. Right. He's having one of the greatest linebacking years 
in the history of the National Football League. How about that? He's been, yeah, I mean, he's been special. The guy is just, you know, the way he runs side to side, he just gets everything in front of him. And, yeah, it's, I mean, he's just well-deserved. It's well-deserved to be rated that high, don't you think? I do. I really do. We'll come back to the Seahawks in the last section of the show. And, by the way, the Mariners are still trading players. I'm assuming they haven't traded one since we started this podcast, but they may have. Gene, maybe. Gene, maybe. The last one was Gene Gene, the hitting machine. Gene Segura yeah. to the Phillies for a, uh, a former top five major league prospect named J.P. Crawford. How do you feel about what Jerry DePoto, now that you've seen what Jerry DePoto did with Paxton and what he did with Cano and what he did with Diaz and now what he's done in, with Gene Segura, how are you feeling as a moderate Mariners baseball fan? I have no problem with the moves or the personnel. You know, I'm not going to get into the farm system and what they were ranked and then now what they're ranked with the addition of, of the new guys uh, or the strategy of, of blowing up the team. What, what I think there's, where there's criticism is – is having a conversation about the fact that we're reimagining. This is not a re- – I, I can't even imagine what he did. I mean, you, you can't reimagine things where basically you overhaul the entire roster. That's not reimagining. No. So maybe from a PR perspective, it's like, well, don't sell that and then go ahead and blow it up. Just say you're going to blow it up. That's my only issue. But uh, other than that, um, in terms of the prospects – I think the prospects are fine. It's what the some of these young guys are going to play, but just don't do a, a another thing like we did with Jack Z, where he played guys too early that weren't ready and and uh, they didn't end up, end up panning out. Well, we'll find out with Jason Stark. I trust Jason Stark just about as much as I trust anybody. Nobody knows baseball, and he's our next segment's guest. Uh, here's what I would say to your point: It is possible mm-hmm. that Jerry Depoto, when he made the comment that they're going to reimagine the roster, whatever that comment was. It's possible that that's what he intended to do, never thinking that he could get rid of Cano. And once Mm. he found out he could get rid of Cano, but had to get rid of Diaz to do it, I think he probably changed and altered courses from reimagining to something else. And the way I feel feel as a 22-year Mariners fan is this. I was okay with the Paxton deal. It was sad to see him go, uh, but I liked the idea of the Sheffield guy. I'm not going to pretend to know anything about these guys, but what I read, I like. He's a left-handed, top of the, you know, mm-hmm. top of the rotation starter of the future. I get it. I understand it. I was okay with it. Mm-hmm. The Cano, yep. the Cano Diaz trade bothered me a little bit because. I didn't like them getting rid of Eddie Diaz when they have so much, so many years of control and he's so inexpensive. But mm-hmm. I suppose I can understand the reason he did that was to get from behind this, this mountain of a, of a financial burden that comes with Robbie Cano, considering that they're not going to be any good for the next year or two. So what good does paying Robbie Cano do for you when you're losing right. 85, 90, 95 games? So I, I didn't love that one, but I understood it. But the trade that has me a little bit sideways is the Gene Segura trade. And it's not as much about me loving Gene Segura, which I do, and I have since he's gotten here. I love Gene Segura, but that's not the reason Mm -hmm. why I'm sideways. There's just something about this trade that doesn't sit well with me 
We are being told that it's about J.P. Crawford, a young infielder who was at one time a top five major league prospect, but not anymore. I don't Mm -hmm. really believe that this was about J.P. Crawford. I think this was a pure salary dump trade. I was okay with the salary dump of Cano because you were able to bring back a prospect that everybody says, this 19-year-old guy, everybody says is the real deal. Everybody loves that kid. So I got it. But I haven't read one thing about J.P. Crawford or heard one thing about J.P. Crawford Mm. that makes me think that he's going to be what Jerry DePoto is either saying or will say to us is the reason he got rid of Segura. Of course, DePoto's never going to admit that it's it's a salary dump. He's going to get in front right. of a microphone and tell us how much he likes J.P. Crawford. And I'm not going to call him a liar. That's the last thing I'm going to do. I like Jerry DePoto, but I think the Seattle Mariners do not care about 2019. They just don't care how many games they lose in 19. And... I kind of feel like they don't care how many games they lose in 2020 either. And I think that this Gene Segura trade tells us that because Segura is not old. They would have been much better with Segura than J.P. Crawford. And and they traded Segura to get the salary down, the payroll down. And so Mm -hmm. I say if the Mariners are going to wave the white flag in 2019 and maybe 2020 – my my opinion is they have no other choice but to lower ticket prices, which they'll never do. But why should Ooh. why should they be able to say to us, "Hey, we're focusing on twenty and twenty one seasons. We're not focusing on nineteen, and then charge us the same amount of money for these tickets as we paid for an eighty nine win team a year ago?" That doesn't make any kind of sense to me. I I think they have no choice but to discount these tickets. Can't tell you how excited I am that one of our charter sponsors is Jaguar Land Rover of Bellevue. Al and I came to town the very same year. He from California. I came from D.C. We've been friends and business partners for 24 years. His BMW dealership, my very first endorsement in 1995. And I've been on the air raving about his dealerships ever since. The reason is simple. They do it right. An atmosphere that is different than other car dealerships from the moment you walk through those doors. A pressure-free environment no matter the make or the model. A fabulous pre-owned selection of vehicles for the holidays and a great service department to boot. I was trying to figure out how many cars I've either leased or owned from Al's dealerships a couple of weeks ago. In the last 24 years, I think it's up to nine, including my most recent from Jaguar Land Rover of Bellevue. And remember, they don't call Land Rovers the big daddy of them all for no reason. Make your holidays safer by driving the best 4x4 by a landslide. The family discovery. It has to be the best value family SUV. Jaguar Land Rover of Bellevue. Unfiltered. Don't forget Mitch Unfiltered, available on iTunes and all platforms, Spotify and whatever all these things are, which I have no idea. Subscribe and throw us a five-star rating, I'm told to tell you, even though I don't know what any of that means, as you know. I I believe it helps, but whatever. Uh, This whole podcasting thing has its perks. 
Uh, one is I can sit behind a microphone in my pajamas a couple of times a week. And the other is I get a chance to talk to old friends. And joining us on the Mitch Unfiltered podcast right now, our next guest and I spent years kibitzing about the M's and baseball and Major League Baseball until poof, he disappeared. He just disappeared because of the, the ESPN uh, the ESPN ban. His fondest memory, I believe, Jason Stark, is the brilliant clock management and my on-time appointments from years past. Uh, here he is, Jason Mitch, Stark. Yeah, Mitch, I, I, I did miss you. Um, I really did. And I didn't miss sitting by the phone for 40 minutes waiting for the 8 a.m. segment to begin promptly at 11.40 a.m. Eastern time. See, <laughs> I, I didn't see miss that part. But I did miss the laughs and the, and the conversation, so it's great to be having that again. See, what you never realized is, is that Seattle is actually three and a half hours behind Philly, not three and you, and you, <laughs> is that right? And you called it's a long thir- way from here. I know that. And you called thirty minutes early every time. If you would have known about the three and a half hours, we would have been on time every single week. <laughs> Boy, is uh, that a lie? That is le- a lie. Uh, let me ask you my Walter Cronkite question of the uh, of the day, and that is, what the hell is Jerry Depoto doing? <laughs> help, help us, please. Help us understand. Jerry's made more moves so far this offseason than the entire NL Central. <laughs> because that's what he does. Uh, you know, it's been fascinating to watch this unfold because I, I think if you asked him, he would tell you this is not what he envisioned. I mean, when he used that that word reimagine, I, I really do think, Mitch, that that's what he thought, that they were going to tweak and they were going to try to get themselves set up to be to be good again in a couple of years, but not take a gigantic step back, not blow up the roster the way they have. But, you know, stuff happens when you're willing to trade somebody every 10 minutes. That's him. Jason Stark of The Athletic, I should say, and uh, so many years. How many years at ESPN before The Athletic? 17 years. 17 years, baby. 17 years. 17 years. So let me, let me get this straight. So Jerry is saying to, to Mariners fans – we are going to look beyond 2019 and look at the bigger picture. We're, we're aiming for 20 and 21, and we're going to rebuild the farm system, and we may lose some games in 19, but we're going to be better off because of it. So my question to you is, can season ticket holders then say the same thing to the Mariners, which is we're going to look beyond 19, hold our seats for us, hold our place. We're not going to buy 19. But we're going to really aim to come back strong in 20 and 21. Is that allowed? <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Look, I, I live in a town where the local basketball team decided to spend four seasons trying everything it could to be as bad as it possibly could. And I've always thought, look, that's fine. You can do whatever you need to do. Just don't charge admission. <laughs> don't make me pay to watch. And uh, fans always have that option to not go, to not watch, to tune out, and then tune back in. That's they, they retain that right. It doesn't change here. But like I think you're starting to see the makings of a plan. You know, like when I think when he trades Zanino and gets Malik Smith back. Yeah, that was. That was still reimagining. Yeah. 
when he trades Paxton and gets Justice Sheffield and that group back, yeah. that was still reimagining. Yeah. All of a sudden, when he has a chance to unload Robbie Cano and all of those dollars, that was what that's when the plan changed. And that's when reimagining became get back to us in two years. And everything that goes with that, I think they're prepared to accept. Okay, do they? Let me ask a serious question about season ticket holders. Do, do they have to reduce ticket prices? I would think, you know, uh, this is not the first time a, a team in, in professional sports has done something like this. And when it was when it was Cano and Diaz for that prospect, I'm going to ask you about the Mets prospects that they got back in a second. You know, it it, it was it was you know, similar to so many in the past. But when the Phillies thing came along, and I know you're going to you're gonna throw Crawford at me, but when the Th- Phillies thing came along, uh, it seemed to me that it, it, it changed from Paxton for Sheffield and, and the, the, the 19-year-old from the Mets to let's get rid of salary here and get very little, if anything, back. And when you start doing that, that tells me, Jason Stark, you better start you better start seriously consider reducing ticket prices for the season that you've really kind of now thrown out the window. Or is that not fair to ask? Um, well, I, like, I don't think they're going to lose 110 games. I don't think he's trying to build a team that wins 50 games. How many, um, how many are they going to lose? How many are they going to lose? Uh, this might be a 90-win team, but it's not a 100 or 110-win team. Like, get, get 110 lost team. I'm, let's, let's do this again. This might be a 90s loss team, but it's not a 110 loss team. Yeah. It's definitely not a 110 win team. You, no. You've seen one of them. No. And uh, I, get back to me after we see how many pitches are left standing and who they are, because that'll that'll be an indicator. But I think they're actually going to field a major league lineup. I just don't know what the pitching staff's going to look like yet. But there is a you know there's a concept in baseball and sports now called dynamic ticket pricing. Yep. And teams have mostly used that to charge more money for the big games when the Yankees come to town or the Red Sox come to town or whoever the heck else you might be willing to pay a little extra for. But really the concept of dynamic pricing is a lot like when you buy a plane ticket. What you know, what is this ticket worth? What are people willing to pay to get on this plane? And if that's less than premium prices, then that's what they charge. And it, that should apply now, right? It should apply to teams that take a step back. It rarely does, but I think it's fair to, to say that. I, I would say the secondary ticket market is more likely to reflect it than the primary ticket market that the Mariners roll out there. All right. Well, then I give them permission to up the prices and dynamic seat prices when they have two <laughs> other teams that are not the Mariners, when they have two other teams playing at Safeco Field that aren't the Mariners. <laughs> uh, the Blue Jays come in and play some home games there. Huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Let me go. Let me take you, because I know you have to run. Let me let me take you through some of these trades. Give, just give me a thought on Sheffield. Let's start with Sheffield. I was a little disconcerted that uh, – that after they made the deal with the Yankees on Sheffield, I started seeing reports, maybe you, your own, that uh, the Yankees were talking to everybody about Sheffield. 
as if to say that the Yankees aren't as sold on Sheffield as everybody else might be. True or untrue? Um, you know, you got to trade somebody if you go out and get James Paxton, right? And, you know, the Yankees have, and Brian Cashman have done a, an incredible job with their system, and they use that system to fuel their big league team, and they use that system to fuel their their passion to make trades. And I think they identified Sheffield as a guy they were ready to move, that he would have value in the industry, which is true, but that he wasn't going to quite be a fit on their big league team this year. And, you know, I, I would look, I think that there's a division of opinion about him. He's not a finished product, but I, you know, I've heard you terms to describe him like electric stuff, uh-huh. dynamic stuff. Uh, and there, there's no doubt he is potentially a big time talent. He's not a finished product. So you have to accept that part of it. If they do a good job of developing him, and turning him into what he could be, and he maxes out talent, yeah. then that's a that's a fine trade. I look, I I think all three guys should play in the big leagues. Um, I you know I don't know that that was the perfect trade for James Paxton, but there's nothing wrong with that particular deal. Okay, the uh, the voice of Jason Stark of the Athletic for 17 years at ESPN. Before that, let's move to the Mets deal because. At first, I hear that Kalenic, I guess I'm pronouncing it right, um, yeah. is a five-tool, 19-year-old who was the sixth round or sixth overall pick in the first round last year uh, from the Mets organization. And then in the next breath, I hear he's the third best prospect of the Mets organization. So one of the two things is correct. Either, either the Mets have the greatest organization in the history of baseball or um, he's 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 a four tool a four and a half tool player instead of a five tool player. How do you like that deal for the Mets? I, I can confirm that the Mets do not have the greatest organization in the history of baseball. <laughs> that uh, I don't know anybody that doesn't like what he brings to the table. Okay, um, he's he's you know his bat to ball skills are potentially star level. He plays with tremendous passion, tremendous energy. Um, There's so much to like about that guy, but he's 19 years old. And, you know, is he going to be Juan Soto and uh, appear in the the Seattle metropolitan area in 2019 and make an impact and win rookie of the year? He is not going to do that. Uh, there's there's going to be a few years of watching how he progresses and adapts and how everybody adjusts to him and that that's I mean that one's they've got to be right about that because of the other two guys in the deal but so far I have not talked to a single person in baseball who doesn't love the player the Phillies deal really hurt me because I love Segura. Um, I loved it when they 
acquired yeah. him. I loved it when they re-signed him and extended him. I know it was for a, a, a little bit of money, but I liked him. I, I liked that he was in the All-Star game. I liked everything about Segura. Not a huge fan of him defensively at shortstop, but but he was okay, and I just like him. I like uh, There's something about him that I like, and then I hear that they're trading him uh, to the Phillies, and um, I don't know. I, I guess you're going to tell me that this Crawford – was is one year removed from being, you know, one of the top prospects in Major League Baseball. Uh, was he so bad last year that uh, nobody likes him anymore? Or uh, obviously Jerry likes him. <laughs> Jerry likes him. What, what, what would you say to us about Crawford and that deal, Segura, to your hometown Phillies team? Yeah, uh, I, I'm not a huge fan of J.P. Crawford. And, I, I like, I would say that his – he went from one of the – top, depending on who you read, who you ask, 10, 15, 25 prospects in baseball to a guy who, remember now, fell completely out of the Baseball America top 100 wow. uh, to a guy who they dangled a little bit last year before the deadline and found very little interest in. Um, I don't know how to explain what happened. I, I, I would say based on my read of him, is that he remains an incredibly talented kid who, as soon as he achieved that exalted, that exalted prospect status, decided he had already done what he needed to do. And he didn't seem like he was driven by greatness. Mm. I don't think he can ever be great unless you truly aspire to be great. And I think that, for whatever reason... You've seen it before in players in all sports. They decide they've done it, they've made it, they've been it before any of that's true. That felt like J.P. Crawford. I don't feel like he he showed anybody that drive to just take that next step to that level he really should have been at. He was regarded as a guy who had tremendous feel for the strike zone who controlled at bats right at an early age you look at the early years of his minor league career mitch he had more walks than strikeouts which is incredibly rare for a kid at his age because he signed young and then we didn't see that anymore he the quality of his at bats declined markedly look at the extra base hit numbers it's it his power even his gap power disappeared and so maybe this trade reignites that passion. He is from the West Coast. Maybe that maybe that'll help. But I'll be honest: the Phillies did not have a lot of interest in him, other than this deal. But he's a lottery ticket. He, you know, this is one where, to me, if you're trading Gene Segura, J.P. Crawford has got to turn into Gene Segura, or it's a mistake. Two last ones for Jason Stark before he goes to his next commitment. Um, what happens at the winter meetings? I'm assuming you're going to tell me that they'd love to get rid of Seager and his and his contract. Um, any? Do they have to trade young uh, players to get I, rid of Seager? I don't know. I, I I don't get the sense they're doing that. No, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, Seager is is one of those guys where the value of keeping him exceeds the value of trading him right now. Uh, his value is about at a low point. He's under control for 19, 20, 
21, even the next year with the option. So there's no reason to rush into that. And they're not going to attach him to somebody like Mitch Hanniger just to move him. That's, you know, it's one thing to do that with a relief pitcher. It's another thing to do it with a guy who you think is your centerpiece player moving forward. And, I mean, the one point I wanted to make, Mitch, is in a couple of years, the AOS has a chance to look really different. The Astros have a chance to look really different. Really? Uh, look at their potential free agents, Verlander and Cole and Springer and Correa, and tell me how long their window to win is. Mike Trout potentially could no longer be in the AOS in a couple of years. So if you're building for two years from now, Mitch Hanniger should still be part of it. So should Eddie Diaz. I mean, they never intended to trade Edwin Diaz, but then when they they, they had a chance to, to get, get rid, rid of, of the Cano contract, yeah. it became impossible for them to resist, as far as I can tell. And, I mean, I don't know that the return is quite what it would have been if they had traded Diaz alone. Probably could have done a little bit better. But I think they felt like the return's comparable, and we're getting rid of this insane contract. You have to do this. Jason Stark, I've always loved you. Thank you so much. Read him in The Athletic. Uh, you remember him from his days not only on KJR, other local radio stations, but, of course, ESPN for 17 years. And I, I hope that you won't be a stranger because you can't use that you're not allowed anymore. You can't use that excuse anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't an excuse. That was true. <laughs> hey, it was really fun to talk to you again. I'm just sorry I couldn't find that little bell I used to ring when you got out of line. Here, I got one. How about yep. that? <laughs> Sounds just like it. <laughs> Thank you, Jason. Talk to you soon. Thank you, Mitch. The boys and I ate at Zeke's Pizza the other night, the Northwest's homegrown pizza company, founded at the base of Queen Anne in 1993 by buddies Tom Vile and Doug McClure. Zeke's is rooted in friendship and celebrates the adventurous spirit and natural affinity for craftsmanship that makes the Northwest great. Proud of its heritage, Zeke's has never tried to be anything that it's not. No looking up at New York, no fascination with the Neapolitan, no playing little brother to Chicago, just confidence in the great food culture of Seattle and the fresh flavors of the Northwest. And that means pizza dough with a West Coast's kind of sourdough bite. It means toppings that are full throttle on flavor. It means embracing creative and different without ever losing respect for the classics. It means attention to balance and detail. It means Zeke's taking pride in its craft. Zeke's Northwest Roots also make it one of the Puget Sound's best destinations for local craft beer, cider, and spirits. You know, our upper left coast corner of the country is a craft beverage mecca, and Zeke's early support of the regional scene means Zeke's has some of the deepest and best relationships around. So grab a slice of the Northwest. Maybe it's to watch a ball game like the Gonzaga-Washington game the other night. Visit one of Zeke's 14 Puget Sound locations or have homegrown pizza and beer delivered to your doorstep or next lunch meeting. Zeke's Pizza, homegrown in the Northwest. Unfiltered. And don't forget, you can become a patron at MitchUnfiltered.com. My next guest is an award-winning writer several times over. 
Football Morning in America, the podcast, Football Morning in America, the column, and an old friend. It's great to hear the voice again. Here he is, uh, the one and only Peter King. Thanks for being back with us, Peter. Appreciate it very much. No problem, Mitch. Really glad to uh, to hear your voice again and glad to uh, have you back uh, in our media world. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's great to hear your voice. The big game on Monday night that we're all counting down to is obviously the Vikings and the Seahawks. I frankly didn't think the Seahawks would be in this position at seven and five, and I thought the Vikings might be a little bit better. How do you how do you view the two teams that'll play at CenturyLink Field on Monday night, Peter? Mitch, I uh, I look back at it's funny uh, my only experience with the Seahawks. I usually go to training camp. I didn't make it this year, but I did see them uh, in a preseason game at Minnesota, and. Uh, that night I said to myself, of all the teams I saw this summer, this is kind of the most unexpected. A, they protected Russell Wilson pretty well. They ran the ball okay. The defense really made some plays with a bunch of young defensive players who uh, people didn't really know. They, there was a life without Michael Bennett and Cam Chancellor and, and Richard Sherman. And, and so I looked at that and I said, Maybe this isn't going to be so bad after all. And I remember after the game, standing there in the Seahawks locker room with John Schneider, and I said to him, uh, man, this is the first year where you're really going to be new, mm-hmm. where you're, you know, you're going to have a chance to, to sort of uh, redraw the boundaries and everything. And he said, hey, he goes, you know, Pete Carroll always wants to have these competition Wednesdays. And he wants to have these things where, uh, these practices where, you know, you tell your players, if you practice hard and you're better than the next guy, you're going to play on Sunday. Or you've got a really good chance to play on Sunday. Keep it up. But how do you do that when you got a bunch of guys making 8 and $10 million and they've arrived and they're really good players? You can't have competition Wednesday against Cam Chancellor. You know, or against uh, you know against Earl Thomas or or Michael Bennett or Richard Sherman, Bobby Wagner. You just can't do it. And and I I have found over the last few months yeah. thinking about that and looking at all these new guys, you know, who are making their mark with this team. Uh, that that that's that that's been a, a a really valid thing that Schneider said. The one other thing I would say is nothing personal against tom cable but i'll tell you it was time yeah you know you 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 talk about you talk about mike mccarthy getting whacked in the middle of a season in green bay oh my god how'd that happen well sometimes it's just time and you know it was time for for the seahawks to move on uh from tom cable and their offensive line has been somewhere between better and significantly better uh, than it was the last couple of years. So I think that was a that was a good decision that Pete Carroll made. You know, they're running the heck out of the ball. It's funny that you had that outlook when you visited with Schneider. I think most of us here, they, they had trouble winning a game in the preseason, and then they start 0-2. They lost to the Broncos. They lost to the Bears. It seems like five years ago that the whole Earl Thomas mess happened, even though it happened at the beginning of right. this year. And, you know, they're 0-2, and we're talking about the draft in 2019. And lo and behold, three months later, 
if you look at it, Peter, they've won seven out of ten, and the three losses that they have, two came to the Rams, and they were in both games in the fourth quarter, and one came to the Chargers, and they had the ball down at the goal line, the Chargers' goal line, with a chance to win the game and uh, didn't get yeah. it in. Other than that, they've won every single game. They're seven and five, and you know, I look at these playoffs like you do. It, it just seems like a nine and seven Seahawks team will be good enough to make the playoffs. And I would, ma- I would imagine you're going to say, who wants to see Russell Wilson in the first right. round of the playoffs walk through their doors on the road uh, in the NFC playoffs? I don't think anybody wants to see this Seahawks team. Well, all you have to do is watch the last two series of the game in Carolina to say that. Russell Wilson could be your worst nightmare in January. Yeah, I look back at the game, at the championship game in 2014 against the Packers where Russell Wilson had a lousy game for about 70% of that game. And then at the end of the game, what does he do? He throws an absolute beautiful pass in overtime uh, to, to Jermaine Kearse to win the, you know, to win the game. And to uh, you know to, to make the Super Bowl that year, and uh, and and I I sort of look at him as the ultimate equalizer at the end of games. But you raised the point, and and before before I I came on with you, I just wanted to look up a couple of things just to kind of refresh my my memory about it. But I find it absolutely amazing how this team that since Marshawn Lynch has really struggled to get any semblance of a running game going. And how about this? Like in the last uh, five games, yards per rush, 4.8, 8.0, 4.9, 2.7 at Carolina, and then 5.8 against the 49ers. And the 49ers have a good defensive front. And so I I just look at this and I say, you know, the the one thing – that that I think Pete Carroll and Brian Schottenheimer thought in this offseason, okay, we got Russell Wilson, but the quickest way to fail with Russell Wilson is to put everything on him. And we just have to be able to run the ball consistently well. And who would have thought that they would have done that with all the changes they've made on the offensive line and before this year, all the changes that hadn't worked. But they have worked. So, you know, kudos to them. Some league-wide issues with you, Peter. The great Peter King is with us. Football Morning in America, the podcast and the column. I read your your most recent column, and you had so much on Kareem Hunt. Um, I guess the best question that I can ask you is it's obviously fashionable these days for everybody to point fingers at the NFL and point fingers at the Kansas City Chiefs. Why didn't they know more? Why didn't they talk to Hunt? Why didn't they see the video? Why aren't they in the same business as TMZ? Um, has it been fair blame and criticism, or is it just piling on? I I think I think the two big takeaways I have in this number one is how does the, the Cleveland Police Department never watch the video, um, which apparently they haven't. Uh, so how how do they not watch the video? That's that's the biggest question I have. Um, this is a woman who is interviewed by the cops. She's crying. She's shaken up. She basically said, this guy uh, hit me uh, and blah, 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 what, whatever. I mean, 
Uh, how is that not investigated more than it was? It's ridiculous. Totally, totally ridiculous. Now, you get to where the NFL is. And I know the NFL, I can, I, from having seen what they've done in, like, the Brady case, in the Saints case, uh, you know, they, what the NFL tries to do is they try to build the case with enough evidence from outside the person from the satellite outside this, you know, whoever uh, has done something, are they suspect of doing something? And then at the end, they go in and say, well, here's what we understand. This happened, this happened, this happened. Give us your comment. It's easy for somebody to say, uh, if somebody, did you do this? No, I didn't do this. And if you don't have any proof that he did it, what are you going to do? But in this particular case, to never have spoken to Kareem Hunt in nine months Amazing. is inexcusable. It's inexcusable. Uh, and, and not that he would have said anything different than he told Andy Reid, but at least, at least you have Kareem Hunt lying to the NFL, which you then can use when you find out the truth, whatever the truth is, if he has lied to you, uh, you, can, you can come down harder on him, and you should come down harder on him. Uh, for 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 lying to the league, but that's where I find the biggest fault. Peter, do you find any fracturing of NFL owners in the way that it seems like some owners won't have anything to do with these guys, or say they won't have anything to do with these guys that are involved with domestic violence? And then there's other owners who who sign Reuben Foster, for an example. Do you do you sense that some owners are mad at others, and this will come up in meetings as to, hey, we should be acting as a group here instead of acting as individuals? I mean, I think there are some owners who look down on Washington for having signed Reuben Foster. But the minute you start doing that, Mitch, then uh, you start talking about collusion. And right. that is a potential jillion dollar lawsuit that uh the nfl doesn't want to get anywhere close to um i here's where i think the disappointing part comes in if, when i look at it why don't nfl teams just do like what they did with kareem hunt hey i think kareem hunt is probably going to play football again mitch he's 23 years old his first 27 games as an nfl player he's been better than thurman thomas and marshall Falk. I mean, and that's the kind of back he is. He is a rushing, receiving back. First first game he ever played in the NFL. He caught a 78-yard wheel route from Alex Smith for a touchdown in New England. I mean, this guy is a do-everything back. So, so I, I do think he's going to play again. But my whole point is, why in the world don't you simply wait until he has shown, A, remorse, B, the ability and the uh, uh, the uh, the ability to change his life, uh, the desire to get treatment, mm -hmm. uh, the you know, look, I, I I know that you know he went on ESPN the other day, Kareem Hunt, and said, you know, that's not me, that's not how my parents. Well, it is you. You kicked a woman. That's you. You did that. So face it. Instead of saying that's not me, well, it is you. You did it. We saw it. Mm -hmm. So so just face that you've got some sort of issue, drinking, anger, all of the above. I don't have any idea. But, uh, you know, Tony Dungy was fond of saying 
when I uh, would work with him at Football Night in America, nothing good happens after midnight. Well, nothing good happens at 3.45 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> That's when this thing yeah. happened with Kareem yeah. Hunt. Yeah. The voice of Peter King. Two last ones for you, Peter. You called the Green Bay firing of McCarthy kind of a mercy firing in your column. Um, handicap, if you can, or maybe it's too early, what type of guy would be the next Green Bay head coach? Describe the kind of guy they're looking for to take over the the uh, the reins with Aaron Rodgers. The other day, the Chicago Bears were behind seven points on the last play of the fourth quarter against the Giants. Matt Nagy, the coach of the Bears, called a play that was a double reverse option pass by Tariq Cohen, the running back for <laughs> I the saw Bears. It. I saw it. It scored a touchdown and to tie the game, it right? Scored, it scored a touchdown to tie the game, to yeah. send the game into overtime. And so the obvious thing is, I think probably, okay, if you've got 25 of the 32 teams in the league, would have, you know, Jordan Howard, big back, would have just given it to Jordan Howard, hey, find a way to get us a yard put a big fullback in there, let's go, or a big blocking back, whatever, and, and let's go. But Matt Nagy said, you know what, we're going to trick him, and he did. And so I only bring that up, Mitch, because in my opinion, when I look at the Green Bay Packers and I look at Mike McCarthy, who's a very good coach, but I believe that he's not a very imaginative coach, at least right now. And you look at Sean McVay. You look at Sean Payton. You look at Matt Nagy. You look at Doug Peterson. They are going to come up with imaginative, fun, confusing for the defense plays. Haven't seen that in Mike McCarthy in a long time. So I think one of the things the Bears are going to look for, or the Packers are going to look for in the next month, because that's how long they have before they have to do anything real, I think they're going to do their homework on all the really good football minds, probably offensive minds, but you got anybody on defense who can who can find a way to stop all these intergalactic high-scoring offenses? We'll talk to them too. Uh, it's a, it was a humane firing because you don't subject McCarthy for the next month to the constant stream of. So, what do you think about your job? Are you going to get fired? You're not going to get fired. It allows him to take a deep breath and. Uh, and get ready for for his next chapter in his in his life. Peter, everybody in the football world, the NFL world, has watched Mahomes in Kansas City, has watched Drew Brees in New Orleans, and the great story of the Rams' success. If you asked Mitch, what is the most underrated, underreported story of the NFL season? I think it's the Houston Texans. Three losses yeah. to start the season. And nine consecutive wins to get to nine and three. And while everybody is focused on, you know, the Chiefs and the Patriots in the AFC, this Texans team just doesn't just doesn't ever lose. Have hasn't lost in like three months. What do you think about that story? Here, here's the thing with the Texans. You know, they're a really good all around team. When when Deshaun Watson got hurt. They had to score 35 to win games. They had injuries on defense and, and all that. But right now, they don't need to do that. They are, they are a good uh, – they're a good team on, in all aspects of football right now, and that's why they're winning. They don't rely on one thing. 
They have one of the top five special teams units in the league, one of the top five defenses in the league. They had a very good running game with Lamar Miller. They got a great wide receiver in in DeAndre Hopkins. I'm I'm very bullish on them, Mitch, and and that's one of the reasons why somebody's asking me about the Eagles and now their chances of coming back now that they've gotten hot. You know they the the you know the poor Eagles at Dallas at the Rams then Houston maybe with an 11 game winning streak coming in to play them (laughs) in Philadelphia in a game that the the Eagles absolutely have to have. Wow. Peter, you've been good to me for a lot of years, going back to our my days in D.C. and, of course, on the radio here in Seattle and now the, the Mitch Unfiltered podcast. Thank you very much for all that you've done for me and your cooperation, and I hope that we can, uh, we can visit again as we go along during this football season. I know you're spread thin, but make a little time for your old pal, okay? I will do, Mitch. Hey, thanks a lot. Take care. Unfiltered. happy to be back in New York and just can't wait for the season to start and be able to uh, go out there and perform and help the teams to win a World Series. It's not about playing 162 games and just go home. It's about winning and be able to um, you know, win another ring, especially on this side of the city. It's, it's mean a lot to me. I came here to win, man. Uh, to the Mets fans, we came here to win and try to reach the World Series and get the ring. Those were the voices of Robinson Cano and Eddie Diaz. And joining us now from New York is a Newsday writer who covers the Mets on a day-to-day basis and has done just a great job. Tim Healy, if you wanna if you wanna follow him on Twitter, Tim B Healy. That's H E A L E Y. Covers the Mets has been writing about this Cano Diaz story for a long time and. Tim, first of all, thanks for joining us. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, sum up the piece that you did about how this deal came together. I think uh, Mariners fans would be interested in that. Sure. Well, uh, well I wrote it, uh, you know, the day the Mets introduced Cano and Diaz, and everybody can check it out at Newsday.com. But really, it was Brody Van Wagenen giving an interesting window into how this deal came together. The teams first started talking at the GM meetings as teams pretty much always do touch base with one another, but it really didn't pick up until, you know, about a week before the trade was announced. Um, it started with Cano and the Mets, who essentially don't have a bullpen right now or didn't have a bullpen at the time, uh, were also interested in Diaz, of course, being the, uh, you know, the, the closer that he is. Uh, but Jerry DePoto, what, uh, you know, signaled to the Mets that, Diaz wasn't available. You know, the four years of team control is certainly a desirable thing, even for a rebuilding team. Um, but the Mets kept asking, kept asking, kept asking, and eventually uh, Diaz was included in the deal, but at the cost of Jared Kalenic, who for the Mariners is the big prize in the trade as far as I see it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Mets were uh, hesitant to give him away, and before they got too far down the line on the trade talks, they – made sure everybody within the organization and the ownership was comfortable with giving away a guy who was their first-round draft pick just this past June, who's a potential five-tool star player. Um, uh, so, so it was a high cost for the Mets, for sure, um, but that seemed to be the key to get Diaz in. Do you get the sense that 
DePoto was negotiating against himself because he had no other takers on Cano, and when the Mets were pounding him to to include Diaz, he worked the phones around the league and found, look, this is the only way I can move Cano's contract or a good portion of Cano's contract, so I'm going to do it with the Mets. Uh, you know, I don't have a great sense of that from, from the Mariners' side, but I can say that obviously there was plenty of interest in Diaz, including from the Phillies, of course, a rival for the Mets. And uh, it was funny to hear uh, Jeff Wilpon, who's the uh, COO of the Mets, acknowledge that part of the Mets' urgency to get this Cano-Diaz deal done was in part to block Diaz from going to the Phillies. Uh, That's, um, you know, pretty often a ploy by baseball teams, but even even if they don't always admit it. Um, So, you know... as much as big as Cano's contract is, and because it's so big, um, you know, Cano's is an upgrade for them at second base, but Diaz really is the prize for the Mets. Tim Healy uh, of Newsday covers the Mets and does a great job with us for a few minutes on Mitch Unfiltered here on the podcast. Uh, we'll get back to uh, Kalenic in a second. Uh, the, the Mets' new GM trying to make a big splash right out of the gates have gotten a lot of flack, at least from a lot of Mets fans. And I think Mariners fans would be curious, is the flack because he gave up the young kid, the 19-year-old, or is the flack because he brought in so much so much salary and Cano and you know it might hamstring on what they are able to do in the free agent process in the next couple of years? It's a, it's a combination of both. You know, on the one hand... If you're taking on a huge contract like Cano toward the end of his career when he's getting toward 40, $100 million, even after it's paid down by the Mariners, and but then you're also giving away, you know, perhaps the best prospect in the Mets farm system. Um, I think the combination of those in the eyes of a lot of Mets fans was just too high of a cost uh, for, you know, Cano, who's coming off the suspension, of course, and then Diaz in a, in a winter when there are obviously a lot of closers out there. So uh, it was definitely uh, re- received mixed reactions from the Mets fan base. But I think the Mets can make it look better and Brody Van Wagen can win a lot of people over if they take this win-now move and add to it. You know, make other win-now moves, make the 2019 Mets actual contenders as opposed to the you know, fourth place team they were the last two years. Tell me more about um, Kalenic and uh, is he a, a corner outfielder? Will he be a center fielder? I know he's really young. What kind of a first year or half a first year, I guess it would be, based on the draft last June, did he have? Uh, uh, tease the Mariners fans a little bit about what they got. I had seen that he may not have even been the, the Mets' number one prospect, Tim. Right, right. No, in, in all the external rankings, Kalenic was third or so in a lot of those. But in terms of, you know, ceiling and star power and what that player could become, he's got as good a ceiling and as good a chance as any of them has seen. Um, in terms of what, what Mariners fans are getting in, in him, well, I'll, I'll say this. He was the sixth overall pick in the draft, and you're not that out of high school from Wisconsin, no less. Uh-huh. Unless you're, you know, a stud. Uh, he's got all the tools. Uh, it, I, my favorite part of his story so far is that, you know, for a lot of ball players, 
baseball is a pseudo career through high school, but he took that one step further by graduating high school a semester early. So around this time last year, he wrapped up high school and spent the six months before the draft just working out and playing baseball and putting everything, all of his eggs in that baseball basket, um, which is a, a, a length you don't see very many players go to, at least not baseball players. It's more common on the football side, kids going to college, things like that. Um, but in terms of his first year as a pro, started off real hot in the GCL, uh, which isn't a very high level of competition, obviously. Struggled initially when they moved him up to another rookie league, but then bounced back, which is, I mean, move any player up the ladder and you're probably going to see an adjustment period so that he rebounded from that and figured out that new level, I think is a promising sign. How about Justin Dunn? Uh, before we get to uh, the veterans and the money that the Seahawks acquired, at least the, uh, the, the contracts that they acquired. Justin Dunn is a, a flame-throwing right-handed reliever. Tell us more about him, if you don't mind, Tim. Well, it, it, he's a starter by trade right now. His future is long-term uh, position or, or uh, you know, rotation versus bullpen is up in the air. Um, but he reached double A this year. He was the Mets organizational pitcher of minor league pitcher of the year. So he's much closer to the majors than, than clinic who's, you know, only 19 and easily three, four years away. Um, but Dunn, you know, he, he's, he's a Northeast kid. So this move to Seattle on the West coast is, is going to be different for him. He's from Long Island. So he's a, a big, big, they got, you know, a popular read among my Newsday readers. Uh -huh. um, but he also went to Boston College, which obviously isn't a big-time sports school, not a big-time baseball school. Uh, so he's always been a little bit of an under-the-radar guy. He had a huge junior year at BC, which made him a first-rounder. The Mets took him. Um, and a lot like we saw with Dunnick this year, Dunn, his first full pro season was 2017, and he was bad in high A. R repeated the level to start in 2018, dominated, moved up to double A, was okay there. So, again, you see the player highly touted, a lot of money on a signing bonus, facing failure for maybe the first time in their life on the baseball field, and then bouncing back from it. I think that's a promising sign, too. And then there's Bruce and Swarzak, who I'm assuming the Mariners took just because of the salaries. The Mets insisted that they go so they could get rid of some of those salaries. Do you expect either one of those guys to be here for very long in Seattle? Uh, well, it depends on if they play well and if Seattle can flip them around the trade deadline. Bruce last year was hurt. He had a, a hip and back issue that robbed him of his power for most of the year. And in the six weeks or so after he came back at the end of the season, his flash line and power numbers were about in line with what he had traditionally done in his career. So that's promising for him. If he turns out to be the Jay Bruce of old, you know, 20 home runs, 25 home runs, 80, 90 RBIs, then, yeah, sure, I can see a team wanting to, uh, you know, take on that sort of player from a rebuilding team like the Mariners. Uh, with Swarzak, it's less money. It's just one more year on the contract. He, the Mets signed him last winter when he had a great 2017. And relievers being what they are, he was hurt. Really, he was, he, he was hurt. And when he was on the field, he wasn't very good. Um, so 
just the volatility of relievers is, is off the charts, obviously. He could be good this year, and if he is good, then yes, I promise the, the Mariners will flip him around the trade deadline. Uh, but really, I, I couldn't tell you what to expect performance-wise from Anthony Swarzak. Tim Healy of Newsday in the New York area. Uh, you can follow him uh, on the Twitter at Tim B. Healy. That's H-E-A-L-E-Y. He'll be chronicling Eddie Diaz, who we call Sugar out here, and Robinson <laughs> Cano in, uh, in New York, back in New York, and, and playing for the Mets. And we'll watch these young guys as they develop through the Mariner system, I guess it's going to be a, a good few years before we get to Kalenic here at Safeco Field. Tim, thank you. Thank you so much thank for you. being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. You know, I've been getting tweets and emails from Mitch Unfiltered patrons and listeners going to Daniel's Broiler and celebrating special occasions with our charter sponsor, and we appreciate that very much. Daniel's goal has always been to serve their guests the world's finest steaks. USDA Prime, the top of all graded beef in America and remaining the foundation of Daniel's Broiler. But they're adding to that selection. Daniel's now serving a hand-cut, exceptionally marbled and very tender 8-ounce Wagyu filet. Or you can enjoy an 8-ounce grass-fed, hormone- and antibiotic-free Piedmontese filet. If you love world-class filets, then you ought to try the Filet Mignon Flight of 4-ounce servings of USDA Prime Wagyu and Piedmontese all served together. The world's finest steaks. Locally owned by the Schwartz family, South Lake Union, Leshy Marina, and Bellevue Place. Daniel's Broiler for special occasions. You can't beat it. World-class steakhouses. Unfiltered. Episode number five, the last segment. Don't forget, you can find us everywhere where podcasts are found, including iTunes. And as Jason Hamilton always says, who joins us from Spokane, where Gonzaga just barely nipped Washington at the buzzer, please give us a rating, but only give us a five-star rating because Jason Hamilton doesn't do four-star ratings, right? <laughs> That's right. That's exactly uh, right. I'm glad you're finally getting, getting the hang of this. That's right. And uh, I would like to say, if you'd like to join us as a patron, go to MitchUnfiltered.com. If you're enjoying the first four or five episodes of Mitch Unfiltered and you'd like to join us, it's $5 a month or more, whatever it is that you want to, or you're comfortable spending on a monthly basis. And what you get for that is access to all of our bonus episodes. We've got all kinds of good stuff up there, including the most recent Mr. Postseason, 36 minutes of comprehensive analysis of the NFL playoffs and where the Seahawks stand. I'm guaranteeing you, if you're a patron, you will not find that type of analysis anywhere in print or in broadcasting, just exactly what you need to know about the Seattle Seahawks. I teased on Twitter that I wanted to tell you the story about the jersey, the Seahawks jersey, that my eldest, my 16-year-old son, asked for for Hanukkah. Would you like to tell? I'll give you. I'll tell you what. I'll give you three guesses. Do you think you can get it in three guesses? What Seahawks jersey? Is this, is this like? Is this? Is this like name that tune? Yes. Yeah. Uh, you got three notes. Okay. Okay. Is it a? Is it a current or former player? It's a current player. How many questions do you get? By the way. That's all. That's all okay. I want. It's a current player. Okay. Okay. Begin the story. No, I want you to guess. <laughs> okay, I wanted you to, I wanted you to, you know, give it a little color. But okay, three guesses on who, yeah. who 
he wants, yeah. the jersey that he wants, and, and ar- why. And he's already gotten it. He wants the punter. Okay, that's just ridiculous. That's what? just ridiculous. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> see, uh, see, I'm in the mind of a high school kid right now. Oh, God. He wants the punter. I he, am in the mind of a high school kid right now. Michael Dixon is the correct answer. Now, would you like to guess why he wants the punter? I'm, I'm a little scared to know, but I think, uh, you know, uh, I just think it's, it's so unique. The guy, the, I, mean, the, I mean, he's a drafted punter. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's the reason. Here's the reason oh, before we go to the tail of the tape. Here's the reason why Max wanted Michael Dixon's jersey for Hanukkah, which he has received in blue. He says to me, Dad, I'm sick and tired of these jerseys of guys that aren't on the team like 15 minutes after I get the jersey. And I had to do an analysis. This is him talking. I did an analysis. And I know Bobby Wagner is going to be on the team, so I'm not worried about that. But all these other guys, I just don't know how long they're going to be on the team. And then it dawned on me. This Dixon guy's going nowhere. (laughs) Smart kid. This Dixon guy. So I said to him, do you even like Dixon? He says, I don't know, but he's not going anywhere. So the, so the Jersey's not, I gotta, he says, I gotta (laughs) believe that this Dixon guy will be around for a good five, eight years. I'm good for five or eight years in this jersey. I said, but oh. I said to him, but that jersey ain't gonna fit you in five or eight years. So it's not gonna right. matter. It's only gonna fit you for about twelve weeks. He says, no, I want Dixon. I said, you sure you don't want Wagner? I don't want Wagner. You sure you don't want Griffin? I don't want Griffin. You sure you don't want Baldwin? Baldwin? No, don't want Baldwin. I want Dixon. Get me Dixon. So he's got the punter. My my son's walking around in the punter's know. jersey. I don't know what made me go there. But I was just thinking it was going to be obscure, and he was the he was the first guy that I could think of, the punter, Dixon. You got it. And Max, well done, young man. Max well is, done. That's where Max is. It. So Max somewhere right now wearing Michael Dixon's jersey. <laughs> Michael Dixon's kids, and he doesn't have kids, but Michael Dixon's kids wouldn't even wear Michael Dixon's jersey. But my son, that's true. Is all right, Jason Hamilton. Are you ready for the tale of the tape? Are you ready to compare these two teams? Are you ready to play this Monday Night Football big game on paper and see who wins? Can you yep. keep? Can you help me keep track? I got it. I okay. got it. I'm in. All right, here we go. Let's do the Minnesota offense versus the Seattle defense first. Points per game. The C- the Minnesota offense scores 22.9 points per game. That's 18th best in the National Football League. The Seattle defense allows 21.6 points per game. That's ninth best in the National Football League. Advantage. Hawks. One nothing Hawks. The Minnesota offense gains 361 yards per game, 16th best in the National Football League. The Seattle defense gives up 367, 19th best in the National Football League. Advantage. Vikings. 1-1. First downs per game. The Minnesota offense, 20.3 first downs per game, 19th best in the National Football League. Seattle's defense, 21.1 first downs a game given up, 23rd in the NFL. Advantage. Third down percentage. Minnesota's offense converts on 39% of their third downs to first. 18th best in the National Football League. Seattle's defense gives up 37%. Ninth in the NFL. 
Advantage. Hawks. 2-2. Yards per rush. Minnesota's offense, 4.1 yards per rush. 24th best in the National Football League. The Seahawks give up 5.1 yards a carry. Dead last in the NFL. Advantage. Vikings. 3-2. Yards per pass attempt. Minnesota and Kirk Cousins, 7.1 yards per attempt, 22nd best. Seattle's defense, 7.8 yards given up per pass attempt, also 22nd best. Advantage? That's a tie, Mitch. It's, it's 22nd a, to 22nd. It's push. It's a push. So it's so what do we got? Three, two, and one to Minnesota, right? Correct. Correct. Quarterback rating. Kirk Cousins, 99.1. Ninth best in the National Football oh. League. Minnesota's defense. Seattle's defense, rather. 94.3. Passer rating. 16th best. In the National Football League. Advantage? Minnesota. Another one goes to Minnesota. And finally, sacks. Minnesota has given up 30 sacks, 14th best in the National Football League, and the Seahawks have gotten 31, but that's only 16th best in the National Football League. Advantage? Minnesota. So. At 5, 2, and 1. 5, Two and one. They win yards. They win first downs. They win yards per rush. They win quarterback rating. And they win sacks. Offense versus defense. Now let's switch it around a little bit, okay? Seattle's Seattle's offense against Minnesota's defense. Seattle averages 26.6 points per game, ninth best in the National Football League. Minnesota's Mm. defense... 22 and a half points given up per game. 14th best in the National Football League. Advantage? Seattle Seahawks. 1-0. In yards per game, Seattle's offense 352 a game, 19th. Minnesota's defense 327 a game, 6th best in the NFL. Advantage? Ooh. Minnesota. And a big advantage to Minnesota. Yeah, that's a big spread right there oh there's gonna be more first downs seattle first downs per game 20.4 offensively 17th minnesota's defense gives up 19.8 10th in the nfl advantage minnesota again third down percentage i want you to remember this one on monday night seattle's offense 39 percent on third downs 19th best in the national football league minnesota's defense gives up 30 percent Number one in the National Football League. Advantage? Minnesota, three to one. Yards per rush, the great Seattle rushing offense, rushing attack. 4.7 yards per carry, seventh best in the National Football League. The Vikings give up 3.7 a carry, second best in the National Football League. Advantage? Minnesota. Seattle's offense yards per pass, 8.3 yards per pass, sixth for Russell Wilson. Minnesota's defense, 7.7 yards allowed per pass, 19th best in the NFL. Advantage? Seattle. Quarterback rating, Russell Wilson on fire, 115.5, third best, only behind Drew Brees and Pat Mahomes, third best in the National Football League. The defense of the Vikings is good. 
gives up only 89.2 for a quarterback rating on the other side. That's eighth best. Advantage. Hmm. Seattle. And finally, sacks. Seattle has given up 37 sacks, 25th best in the National Football League. Minnesota has sacked quarterbacks 36 times. That's eighth best in the National Football League. Advantage, Minnesota. Minnesota again. 10-5-1 advantage, Minnesota. That's a route. It's a route. Now, let let me even it up for you. There's one statistic that I didn't include there that Pete Carroll would say is the most important statistic in football, and others would agree. You know what that Mm. statistic is? I do not. Turnover ratio, turnover margin. Okay. The Seahawks are a plus 11, second best Mm -hmm. in the National Football League, and Minnesota is a plus one, 16th best in the National Football League. So that evens it out a little bit. And then let me even it out a little bit more. Where's the game being played on Monday Night Football? In Seattle. And who plays very well in network primetime games? <laughs> the Seahawks. Seahawks do, do absolutely do that. So there you go. It's a uh, – Okay. So- it, yeah, I don't know how you want to look at it, but it, you know, this is a good Vikings team, especially defensively. This is a very good defensive Vikings team. Very stingy. Very, very stingy. So does, this, does the tail of the tape make you feel good about the game or not so good about the game? I would say ordinarily not so good. I like some intangibles that the Seahawks have in this game. I like where it is. I like what night it's on. I like the way the Seahawks are going. I don't like the way the Vikings are going. I like the turnover margin. So I think that typically – over the years that I've done tail the tape, this would scare the living bejesus out of me, and it still does a little bit, but there are, mm-hmm. st- there are some things that don't appear on paper that I think are going the Seahawks' way, which I think gives them more than an opportunity to win this game. But it's a, it's yeah. a, it's a toss-up game. And, uh, you know, the Seahawks don't have to win it, but I would recommend that they do. I'd recommend that they win this thing. If they don't win it, and then they lose to Kansas City, and that's 9-7. and seven. That gives them zero room for error against San Francisco and Arizona. And it also means that they're going to need a little bit to help happen for them, which probably will happen at 9-7. and seven. It just opens up a can, a Pandora's box that you and I, yep. we don't need that. Do we, do we need that stress in our no, lives? No, yeah, yeah. So. no. And I, and I talked to – I actually talked to Mr. Postseason a couple of times. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he gave me a few scenarios where – you know, nine and seven work, uh, but I, I don't like the loss to the Vikings. You know why, Mitch? Why is that? They're an NFC team, and the season doesn't end today. But, yeah, it doesn't. But Mr. Postseason gave me a little insight on that. I think uh, on a patron episode, just just so you know, in case you want to listen in on that one. <laughs> when do you want to drop the next episode of Mitch Unfiltered? The next regular episode? Should we do it on Tuesday instead of Monday, since they're playing on Monday Night Football? I think it would be wise to do that because uh, we need to know the results of said of said game versus uh, previewing. No one wants to. No one wants to. We've we've previewed. We we know what's gonna take place. We we want to see the result of that so that we can talk about what uh, what actually that means. All right. So I'm saying two. All right. All right. I'm gonna try to get over what I watched on TV, which was the Huskies losing at the buzzer after they climbed back in it. And took a lead in the second half and let the weasel off the hook. I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to regain my composure. You and I will visit again. We will drop another regularly scheduled Mitch Unfiltered. That'll be episode number six. It will come on Monday. 
and I hope, Jason Hamilton, it comes after a Seahawks victory on Monday night to propel them to 8-5. and five. Boy, doesn't that have a nice ring to it? An 8-5 and five Seahawks team with a win over the Minnesota Vikings.